I think it's an exciting play for a number of reasons. It's it's a before-he-was-famous play about the man who went on to achieve what is one of the most celebrated victories in English history. It's a play that reanimates history and it re- recognises that historical persons were just alive as we are today. This is theatre as re- resurrection, as reanimation, And I think more specifically, this is a play about who we are and who we might become. It's about how we exist as self-realising creatures in our own history, with a limited amount of time in what is always a massively historically preconditioned context. It's about our efforts to redeem that time, to make form and meaning out of the chaos of experience. And it's also about what that effort costs. The play appeals to me as a as an exploration of how we make meaning from the meal, real and messy complexity of history, how we wrest identity from the chaos of experience. What do our lives mean? How do we become what we are? Might things have been different? What if they had been? I'm Ewan Fernie and I'm professor at the Shakespeare Institute at the University of Birmingham and I'm also the director of the Everything to Everybody project. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today we're speaking with Professor Fernie about Henry IV Part I, one of Shakespeare's most celebrated history plays. Written around 1598, this play tells the story of King Henry IV and his son, Hal. King Henry wants Hal to adopt the responsibilities of a prince, but Hal is spending his time in London taverns with the fat, roguish Falstaff. Hal shows no outward sign that he is preparing to step into his appointed role. But, in fact, that's exactly what he is doing. Early on, he tells the audience that his riotous living is designed to make it all the more impressive when he does take up the mantle of his royal birth. I'll so offend to make offence a skill, redeeming time when men think least I will. Shakespeare's audience would have known that Hal would, indeed, redeem his time during his future reign as King Henry V, when he would win one of England's most famous battles, though it will take another play, Henry IV Part II, to bring him to the throne. In Part I, we see a person consciously in the act of moving towards their own destiny, one which history has already partly determined, but which they also strive to shape as their own. Prince Hal struggles to master the demands of his time and to maintain space for new, unexpected possibilities beyond his destined role. This is a a history play. It struggles to shape continuous historical time into bounded artistic form. Plays have a beginning and an end. History doesn't, it it, it continues before and after. And this is a play that dramatises the impossibility of the kind of closure it aspires to. It's a play about the man who became Henry V, but there has to be another play before he achieves that destiny. Shakespeare in this play gives Prince Hal a shaping agency spotlighting his intention to cast off Falstaff and loose living and defeat his rival. But in the last scene, Falstaff frustrates this master plan and Hal finds that he's happy about it. It's a play about history, but it's also about resistance to history. It's it's about what is irreducible to history. 
Chappelle, I think, can be compared to Hamlet, who was conceived around the same time. And Hamlet says, the interim is mine. And that could be Hal's motto too. Hal is not yet Henry V. So it's Hal who can say, also, the interim is mine. This play is concerned with time, how to spend the time in your life, and how to time your most crucial actions. King Henry opens the play by addressing his counsellors, sounding rather pressed for time himself. So shaken as we are, so wan with care, find we a time for frighted peace to pant and breathe. In this speech, we find out that Henry wants to establish peace in England and restore his own inner peace by leading a religious crusade to the Holy Land. He has a lot of irritating problems. There's unrest on the Scottish and Welsh borders. His noblemen are being fractious and restive. There's an alternative claimant to the crown and then his own son's dissolute behaviour. He feels more and more guilty and in need of conscientious relief, really, because of his complicity, at least, in the murder and effect of his predecessor, Richard II. Henry usurps his crown and then he colludes in his murder and that shadows this play, and it also more inwardly racks its soul. There is a yearning, a, a sense of guilty taintedness that he wants to be rid of. But civil wars at home mean that this is not the right time for Henry's crusade. In Wales, the English military leader Edmund Mortimer has been taken prisoner. Meanwhile, in Scotland, the English soldier Harry Percy, also known as Hotspur, has defeated the Earl of Douglas. Henry is cheered by this news, though Harry Percy's victory is a bitter reminder of the idle life of his own son, Harry. I, by looking on the praise of him, see riot and dishonour stain the brow of my young Harry. The next scene introduces us to the king's dishonourable son, Harry, often called Hal. He spends his time in the London taverns of Eastcheap with dissolute friends like the rascally Sir John Falstaff. Falstaff drinks, fails to pay his debts and steals. But despite, or perhaps because of, his vices, Falstaff is irresistibly charming to Hal and to the audience. When Hal chides him for being a thief, he protests... Why, Hal, tis my vocation, Hal, tis no sin for a man to labour in his vocation. Falstaff makes plans to rob a group of rich travellers, and Hal agrees to join him. So far, Hal seems as dishonourable as his father believes, but then, alone on stage, he delivers a speech that changes our view. I know you all and will a while uphold the unyoked humour of your idleness. Soon, he says, he will throw off this loose behaviour and be himself a true prince. He's only passing time in Eastcheap to make his transformation more startling and pleasing by contrast. Like bright metal on a sullen ground, my reformation glittering over my fault shall show more goodly and attract more eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. He concludes, I'll so offend to make offence a skill, redeeming time when men think least I will. So... <laughs> 
Hal begins the play by promising to redeem the time, which is a kind of amazing thing, I think, to say at the beginning of a history play, because a history play is itself attempting to redeem the time, isn't it? I mean, the past time that has seemingly irrevocably gone suddenly comes to life. At court, King Henry echoes his son. I will from henceforth be myself, mighty and to be feared. He's speaking to Hotspur and his uncle and father, Worcester and Northumberland. These men helped Henry win the crown, but now he feels increasingly threatened by them, and they by him. They feel Henry owes them more than he has given them, and he feels they may see him as weak because he required their help to take power. Henry therefore asserts his royal authority over these men with particular harshness. Hotspur asks the king to send ransom to free his brother-in-law Mortimer, who is being held captive by the Welshman Glendower. Henry flatly refuses to grant Hotspur's request because he sees Mortimer as a threat. Glendower led an independence movement in Wales in Henry IV's reign. Henry's reluctant to free Mortimer because Mortimer's related by marriage to the Welsh rebel Owen Glendower and he was named by Richard as his heir, so he's an alternative king and a threat. Henry's increasing hostility makes Worcester and Northumberland feel they must take a stand against him now or risk the king preemptively destroying their houses to prevent them rebelling later. They plot to enlist the Scottish Earl of Douglas and the Welsh Glendower in their rebellion. Hotspur is enthusiastic about the plan, partly because this impatient, impetuous soldier feels so offended by Henry's imperious behaviour, and partly because he loves military glory above all else. By heaven, methinks it were an easy leap to pluck bright honour from the pale-faced moon, or dive into the bottom of the deep and pluck up drowned honour by the locks. Hotspur has an explosively straightforward devotion to honour. It's fairly clear that he's relinquished much of his own private life and, and desire, and indeed his life with his wife, to that idolatry, you might say. On the other hand, it has a kind of innocence and purity. When Hotspur is at home, we hear from his wife how honour obsesses him, even in his sleep. For what offence have I this fortnight been a banished woman from my Harry's bed? She asks. In thy faint slumbers I by thee have watched and heard thee murmur tales of iron wars, cry courage to the field. Lady Percy begs to know what is on his mind, but Hotspur only tells her he must ride away immediately. Do you not love me? She asks. When I am a horseback, I will swear I love thee infinitely, he replies. Women are massively sidelined. There's a, a kind of transference of intimacy and identification and of human solidarity and sharing from heterosexual relationships into relationships between male characters. But poor Lady Percy wonders where her husband's gone, really. While Hotspur's been planning campaigns, Hal's been executing a prank. Falstaff and his friends rob the rich travellers. 
But then Hal and his friend Poins disguise themselves and rob their fellow robbers who flee in fear. How the fat rogue roared, laughs Poins. Back in Eastcheap, Hal buoyantly declares that during his time in the taverns he has won the love of all the common folk. I can drink with any tinker in his own language during my life, he says, and the people tell him that when he is king of England he shall command all the good lads in Eastcheap. Falstaff arrives full of exaggerated stories about how bravely he fought the robbers. Hal mocks him with a string of insults. This sanguine coward, this bed-presser, this horse-backbreaker, this huge hill of flesh. And Falstaff responds in kind. You starveling, you elfskin, you dried neat's ton, you bull's pizzle. Hal then reveals the trick and everyone is amused, especially at how Falstaff now defends himself for running away. But the laughter dies away when news comes from the court. King Henry has learned of the rebellion and Hal must return to court in the morning. They play one final game. Falstaff pretends to be Hal's father so Hal can rehearse how he will defend himself. Then they switch roles and Falstaff pretends to be Hal while Hal acts out the king, saying... There is a devil haunts thee in the likeness of an old fat man, that villainous, abominable misleader of youth, Falstaff. Falstaff, playing the prince, protests, If sack and sugar be a fault, God help the wicked. If to be old and merry be a sin, then many an old host that I know is damned. But for sweet Jack Falstaff, true Jack Falstaff, valiant Jack Falstaff, banish not him thy Harry's company, banish plump Jack, and banish all the world. It's Falstaff at his most endearing, which makes it all the more startling when Hal replies, I do, I will. He says, look, if you banish me, you're going to banish all the extensiveness, all the pleasure of the universe. You couldn't raise the stakes higher. And one expects Hal to say, well, no, let's have another drink or to, to accept the joke, but he doesn't. In a sense, he does perform the redemption of the time that he promises here. He whips out that glittering sword and he says, I do, I will. I do, I will collapses present tense and future tense, the present moment and the time to come. Because now is the time for Hal to begin the future he's been planning. They are interrupted by a sheriff who is investigating the robbery. Play out the play, Falstaff says. But the play is over, both this game and Hal's time of playing the prodigal in Eastcheap. Hal promises to repay the stolen money with interest and tells his friends, All to the court, we must all to the wars. In Wales, Hotspur and Worcester meet with Mortimer and Glendower. Hotspur is impatient to go meet their other allies, but Glendower holds them back so they can bid farewell to their wives. 
Mortimer's wife, Glendower's daughter, sings to him in Welsh, while Hotspur and Kate exchange testy words. This scene in Wales, the last time we see these women, offers a rare glimpse of music, love and female presence in a play focused on male alliances and rivalries. Wales is associated in the play with poetry and mysticism and myth, musicality and a kind of sexuality. And this intimates a a stereotypical difference between Welsh and English national cultures where English culture is seen as uh, sort of responsible and rational and, and Welsh culture is cast in you know, rather prejudiced terms, really, as feminine, artistic, a place of the imagination. But of course, those things are also great things. And you can flip the terms in such a way as it reveals the the inadequacy or thinness of English culture as it's presented here. In England, Hal meets with his father. Henry harshly rebukes him for wasting his life in what he calls rude society, while Hotspur is winning never-dying honour. The hope and expectation of thy time is ruined, he tells him. But Hal's intention to redeem the time remains firm. I will redeem all this on Percy's head, he tells his father. The time will come that I shall make Hotspur exchange his glorious deeds for my indignities. He will win all of Hotspur's honour from him when they meet in battle, he says, or he will die in the attempt. His words win over his father. He sends Hal as one of his military leaders in the battle against the rebels at Shrewsbury. The rebels learn that Northumberland is sick and cannot lead his armies to join them. Hotspur optimistically says that winning with a smaller army would lend a larger dare to our great enterprise. Let us take muster speedily, he says. Doomsday is near, die all, die merrily. The next scene offers a different perspective on the glories of war. Falstaff was commissioned to lead a troop of soldiers to battle. He let the strong, prosperous men pay him money to avoid the draft, and so his soldiers are sick men who were too poor to pay. When Howe comments on his soldiers' pitiful state, Falstaff replies, Tut, tut, good enough to toss food for powder. They'll fill a pit as well as better. It's not glory that awaits these men, but a mass grave. King Henry sends a message to the rebels, offering pardon absolute if they surrender now. But the rebels are sceptical of his promise, and they prepare for battle. Hotspur rallies his men, telling them, Oh, gentlemen, the time of life is short. To spend that shortness basely were too long. Falstaff, by contrast, has little concern with behaving honourably or basely. He cares about saving his life. Before battle, he questions the value of the honour that Hotspur pursues so eagerly. Can honour take away the grief of a wound? No. What is honour? A word. What is in that word honour? Air. Who hath it? He that died a Wednesday. Doth he feel it? No. I'll none of it. And he says later, 
Give me life which, if I can save, so, if not, honour comes unlooked for. He does save his own life by pretending to be dead when the rebel soldier Douglas comes after him. But Prince Hal genuinely becomes the soldier he promised to be. Douglas is about to kill King Henry when Hal beats him back and saves his father. Henry tells them, Thou hast redeemed thy lost opinion. But Hal promised to redeem all this on Percy's head to prove his honour by defeating Hotspur. He gets his chance when they encounter each other in battle. All the budding honours on thy crest I'll crop to make a garland for my head, says Hal. They fight and Hal fatally wounds his rival. The dying Hotspur tells him, I better tolerate the loss of brittle life than those proud titles thou hast won of me. Hal offers a courteous and tender eulogy over his dead rival. Fare thee well, great heart, adieu, and take thy praise with thee to heaven. He covers Hotspur's face, and then he says, And even in thy behalf I'll thank myself for doing these fair rites of tenderness. He eulogises him as a sort of brother, or even, even more intimately as a kind of alter ego. Hal has further kind words when he sees Falstaff on the ground, apparently dead. What could not all this flesh keep in a little life? Poor Jack, farewell. I could have better spared a better man. But when he leaves, Falstaff rises up alive. The better part of valour is discretion, he says. In the which better part, I have saved my life. When he sees Hotspur dead, he decides to play another trick, to claim that he killed the rebel to gain a reward. When Hal sees him, to his surprise, alive, and Falstaff tells his story about killing Hotspur, Hal doesn't reveal the truth. Instead, he says, If a lie may do thee grace, I'll gild it with the happiest terms I have. When he covers Hotspur's face, there's an extraordinary tenderness. I think part of that intensity comes from the fact this is exactly what I wanted. And so this man it sort of is me, you know, is part of my destiny. There's that intense pathos. And then the Joker gets up and changes the whole frame. And I think he loves the joke. Henry's forces win the battle and the rebel leaders are executed, though Hal chivalrously asks that the brave Douglas be freed. Henry plans how to deal with the remaining forces of Northumberland and Glendower. The Battle of Shrewsbury has been won, but England's civil wars go on. Henry declares, Rebellion in this land shall lose his sway, meeting the check of such another day. The King's plan to establish peace is in progress but incomplete, as is Hal's intention to cast off his loose living and banish Falstaff. Henry IV Part I shows us characters moving towards their given identities and goals, but it also shows us characters who, for better or worse, attempt to create lives outside or beyond those historically determined demands.
I think the play's view of history is very satisfyingly rich and, and, and complex. On the one hand, it's made by uh, the official personages of history and in the official places, but actually the, the, the court is largely sidelined by this play and the most vital dialogue and the most consequential exchanges seem to take place elsewhere it's in wales it's in the pub it's among the thieves it's so so you get that sense the decision makers have a certain degree of agency but history is is lived elsewhere and lived in different ways and two different rhythms do we finally live in history and our official lives or do we somehow live beyond those official records. Who are we really, this place seems to ask. At the same time, it recognises that you do what you have to, that it's not just an option to luxuriate in what you might be, not in the world of history, where there's always a real and urgent job to be done. I think it's a play that asks questions of history rather than gives us a definitive and single answer about what it is or might be. There is no single picture of history and yet there is an attempt to corral the various kinds of life into one overarching momentum. I think the play leaves us sort of frustrated and delighted at the same time at the end. It keeps us it keeps us involved. In our next episode we'll focus on the character of Hal and how he attempts to forge his own identity in response and opposition to his moment in history.